0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. As I was preparing this message, and I thought I pretty much had this message complete, I got home because I was in Dubuque with my mom and dad and the kids were with me. I got home on Saturday and I realized... This is not the sermon for today. So that more or less took me back to the drawing board, which also meant that I just couldn't get slides up in time. So um, that's okay. If you uh, have a Bible or your smartphone, you will be generally in those places, specifically uh, 1 Corinthians 14. If you don't have a Bible, we got a Bible back there. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, that is your Bible to keep. All right, that's it for all the... uh Introductory statements. So we are in week three of a three-week sermon series called Spirit and Sacraments. Uh, The overarching premise of this sermon series is this. God has given the church, the local church, avenues of grace for us to experience. God is dispensing his grace upon the local church. And we want to get in the way of these avenues. So week one, we looked at how the Lord's table is a means of grace. We celebrate the Lord's table every single week at Redemption Hill Church, and one of the reasons why we celebrate the Lord's table every single week is that it is a means of grace for the local church. Last week, we looked at baptism, right? And then this week, we will look at the spiritual gifts. As with the Lord's table. And baptism, spiritual gifts can be a topic of debate and division, right? If if you've been in, if you've been a Christian for for longer than maybe two cups of coffee, and you've read a few books, you know thousands of books have been written on the spiritual gifts. Do they exist, or had they ceased, or they continue for today? There have been conferences, right, about they don't exist. We have another conference over here saying they do exist for the church today. Um, we have seminaries. Who make hard lines saying, Nope, gifts are not for here. And then we got seminaries who are like, Amen, let's practice them. And so there is debate, there is division regarding the spiritual gifts. So, just like weeks past, uh, we need to approach this topic humbly and look to God's word to see what God says regarding the spiritual gifts. We want to be humble and allow grace to abound. Um, Before moving on, I'll provide one more caveat. I am not going to answer every objection from those who oppose my view on the spiritual gifts. That's just not possible. That actually would take a conference. Uh, My goal is to give you all a taste of how the grace of God is at work in God's people when The gifts of the Holy Spirit are at work. Um, Here's a personal story before diving into the text. I shared this with 40 plus seniors at Des Moines Christian School a couple months back and I told them this story about how I kind of came to an understanding of the spiritual gifts. So I got saved in my early 20s and right away I started attending this, this charismatic church in the Twin Cities. Um, got discipled there, really grateful for the ministry of that particular church. Um, But as I was um, looking up and around, uh, things were happening. And then I was looking up, and then I was looking down at my Bible, and I'm like, what's going on here? How do I map on with what I'm seeing with what we read in God's revealed word? And so that led me into some questions. And uh, long story short, I, I went to seminary, and I made a conscious decision when I went to seminary and it was this. I'm going to put some of my theological assumptions on the chopping block. Um, I, I wanted to come in this particular situation, come to seminary with kind of fresh eyes. I want to allow, allow God's word to influence me. And, and, we, and throughout my experience there, I had a lot of conversations with peers who were smarter than I, with professors about the spiritual gifts. And a common response I would hear from people is this. I see in the Bible that the spiritual gifts have not ceased, so they're still active. I just don't know how it functions or how is it, how is it practiced in a local church. Um, it's that kind of open but cautious view of the spiritual gifts. Yeah, I, I, I read it in the Bible, I get it. But I, let's not let things get too crazy around here. And so the reaction usually is to just move away from it entirely. To their credit, they did not suspend their principles of interpretation, but simply struggled with how the gifts function. I think their response was honest, but also lacking. Well, during that time in seminary, I had two questions that I wanted to resolve regarding the spiritual gifts. What does the Bible say generally about the spiritual gifts? And then number two, how are the gifts of the Holy Spirit supposed to operate? It's these two questions and others which Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 14. While Paul pens this letter, he, he's penning it, he's writing it out of a deep love for the Corinthian church. He also writes because he needs to bring some correction to the Corinthian church. The church at Corinth was immature. The church was planted by Paul, but as the church developed, it actually didn't develop all that much because the direction of the church was very much self-focused. The church did not grow toward maturity. Paul had to bring correction about food offered to idols. He brought correction about marriage, the Lord's Supper, the resurrection. There were pastoral allegiances at Corinth. I follow Paul. No, I follow Peter. No, I follow Apollos. And Paul's like, no, you all follow Christ. So he's bringing correction. And as it pertains today, he had to bring some correction regarding the spiritual gifts. Again, all out of love and a desire for them to know God deeper. The problem Paul contends with, I'm hearing very clearly here, the problem Paul contends with is not the absence of spiritual gifts, but the misuse of spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts are being practiced in a manner to not bring glory to God, but basically turn things in on themselves. You know, it's like the guy with the prophet who comes up and says, I got a prophecy. And where does all the attention go? On that guy. And Paul's like, no, that's not how this is supposed to work. It's not what the gifts are for. Not to turn it in on on yourself. Paul's response is helpful for many reasons, including this. Paul could have written to the church and said, Stop prophesying. Knock it off. Stop speaking in tongues. Stop thinking that you can provide an interpretation to a tongue. Stop healing. Stop working miracles. Stop giving a word of knowledge. Stop, stop, stop. He could have said that. However, Paul does not tell them to stop. I mean, think about it for a moment. If I was in Paul's situation, that would appear to me to be the easy way out. There's chaos erupting. Let's just shut it down. Paul does not take that step. Paul understands that when the gifts of the Holy Spirit are performed with the right heart and with the right end goal, the gifts are a means of grace for the local church. What is the right heart for pursuing spiritual gifts? Paul tells us in chapter 14, verse 1, which is a segue statement from 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says we need to pursue love. Right? Remember the 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. And Paul says we need to pursue love. That's how Paul tethers the spiritual gifts to love. In, let me back up because in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul introduces the topic of spiritual gifts We read in 1 Corinthians 12 that there are a variety of gifts given to the church at the discretion of God. Whatever gifts a person has to contribute to the church, it is viable because each member of the church is viable. Let me pause right here. 1 Corinthians 12 does not highlight the gifts. It highlights the people in the church that God is using and distributing gifts to. Oftentimes we get that backwards. Paul's highlighting the value of each member in the church. That's 1 Corinthians 12. After Paul dials into the spiritual gifts, he says at the end of chapter 12, leading into 1 Corinthians 13, and I will still show you a more excellent way. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talks about the most excellent way, Love. Love. It's a remarkable chapter highlighting this highest Christian ethic. Under all circumstances, we are to love God and love others. I could preach a grand slam sermon, but without love, I'm just a talking mouth. Yakety, yakety, yak. The most eloquent prophecy could be given, but without love, 1 Corinthians 13 says that person is nothing. Love must abound. So why the emphasis un- on love between chapters 12 and chapters 14 of 1 Corinthians, which are the primary chapters that we, <laughs> where we read about the gifts of the Holy Spirit? I think it is because if we want the spiritual gifts to operate in a way that brings honor to God, we have to have an atmosphere of love in this place, in our, in our hearts. It's got to be an atmosphere of Love. Biblical love cuts the legs out of trying to puff yourself up with a prophetic word. Love helps to squash pride. Love causes us to think of our others before ourselves. Love is the most excellent way, which is why we need to always pursue love. Without love, without love, do not come up to me during worship and say you got a prophetic word. With love, Come up here quickly and eagerly. So, hope you're tracking with me so far. In our pursuit of the spiritual gifts, let's not be immature like the Corinthians, but mature by cultivating an atmosphere of Christ like love. Everything I've said so far is basically just the foundation for understanding the spiritual gifts. Now, let's dive into what we mean by spiritual gifts. I've been using that term. What do I mean? And from our passage, two gifts in particular are highlighted. So I'm going to ask five questions to help sort out what I think God is trying to tell us this morning from his revealed word. Five questions that we're going to ask of the text. Here are the questions. First, I'm just going to ask simply, what are the spiritual gifts? Some of you may not have grown up in the church or you didn't grow up in a context where they're being used. What are the spiritual gifts? Let's answer that question. Number two, is the pursuit of the spiritual gifts a suggestion or a command? I'm going to have fun with that one. Number three, why does Paul highlight prophecy? It seems like he's highlighting prophecy over tongues. What's up with that? Number four, is speaking in tongues undervalued in light of what Paul says about prophecy? And then five, last one, what is the end goal of the spiritual gifts? So those are the five questions, and I'll repeat them again. First question, what are the spiritual gifts? Or we also say the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Here's what Sam Storms has said. And by the way, if you want to learn more about spiritual gifts after this sermon, Sam Storms, pastor of Bridgeway Church, I think in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, a great resource. Spiritual gifts are not God bestowing on his people something external to himself. They are not some tangible, he quotes, stuff or substance separable from God. Spiritual gifts are nothing less than God himself in us, energizing our souls, imparting revelation to our minds, infusing power to our wills, and working his sovereign and gracious purposes through us. In summary, Sam Storm says, spiritual gifts Are God present in, with, and through human thoughts, human deeds, human words, human love. So one of the main takeaways from Storm's statement is that God is 100% involved in the spiritual gifts, 100%. When someone says they got a prophetic word on a Sunday morning and they come up to me, God is all in on that prophetic word. He's 100% involved. Now, when God, I'm going to make this caveat here, another one. When God saves a person, they have the Holy Spirit. There is no distinct baptism of the Holy Spirit, but God, according to his purpose and timing, pours out the Spirit as he sees fit. You know, sometimes it's like a 10, And God is just pouring out one prophetic word after another. Spiritual gifts are on display. Sometimes it's two, right? Regardless, God is still at work. And God is 100% involved in the spiritual gifts. Notice what Paul is saying in verse 1. While pursuing love... You are to desire spiritual gifts. Some translations qualify desire with earnestly desire to spiritual gifts. I think earnestly or zealously desire captures the Greek best. God is telling us within an atmosphere of love, right? That's the foundation. To be active in pursuing the spiritual gifts. So, with the definition of spiritual gifts in play, and with an understanding of how they function, or how they're supposed to function within the Christian life... I'm going to answer a few objections. So because throughout my Christian life, two objections in particular rise to the top from my sensationist friends who reject the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. The first objection is that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are abused. The second objection is that the person has never seen the spiritual gifts in use, kind of out of sight, out of mind. The first objection usually comes from a guy or gal who grew up in a Pentecostal church and they, and they look around and they're like, this is crazy. The second objection typically comes from a person who's never seen the gifts in operation, therefore they think the gifts must not exist. I'm going to try briefly to answer both of those objections. Here's a story of a situation where the gifts of the Holy Spirit were unhinged from 1 Corinthians 14. A lot of my charismatic friends do not like it when I tell this story. Um, but I tell it because we're just being honest. We want to be faithful to God's word. At the end of the day, we want God's word to govern us by the power of the Holy Spirit. I also want to tell this story because we need to know objections exist. Here's the story. In 1994, a church in Toronto, Canada, um, was practicing the spiritual gifts and a revival broke out. Uh, people were getting saved and I, and I don't want to discount the good things that were happening, but at this revival it was claimed that the gifts of the Holy Spirit were causing people to do things that I think are out clearly outside the bounds of Scripture, like barking like a dog. I reject this for two reasons. Scripture does not confirm barking like a dog is evidence of the Holy Spirit. Two, it creates disorder, which I'll talk about more here in a moment. This revival is called the Toronto Blessing, and this revival is often used to highlight the abuse of the miraculous gifts. To which I respond, to my critics, I want to acknowledge the problem, but I want to respond to them as well. Pastors abuse preaching, but no one's calling for the abolishment of preaching from pastors, right? What I advocate is to look at the Bible as the source of wisdom and guidance for these matters. Now let's say you grew up believing in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You might say, Pastor Sean, aren't you limiting what the Holy Spirit can do in the life of a person? When you, talk, when you speak against people barking like a dog, why are you putting God in a box? You've heard that before, I don't put God in a box, I hear it all the time. To which I say, I'm not limiting the Holy Spirit. Instead, the Bible tells us how the Holy Spirit functions and how the spiritual gifts are ordered in the life of the local church. The idea of order is really important. God orders creation, Genesis 1 and 2. He orders the family in Ephesians 5. There is an order to how a person is saved, Ephesians 1. I do not think it is out of bounds to suggest God orders the activities of the spiritual gifts in the life of the local church. Now, to my friends who say the gifts are not for today because they have not experienced the gifts, I would say this. It is probably because they are not taking seriously God's command to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Let's face it. If you do not pursue something, you will not likely experience it, right? Unless you're some freak of nature, you will not learn to play the trombone if you do not desire to pursue playing the trombone. Many of my sensatious friends are, you know, they're watching too many YouTube videos of the gifts being abused, which they are out there, as I've mentioned, and not wrestling with 1 Corinthians 14, one, to earnestly desire. This leads me to the second question I want to ask about our text Is the pursuit of the spiritual gifts a suggestion or a command? When my sensatious friends come to 1 Corinthians 14, they seem to be at a loss. They're at a loss because for them to be consistent with their interpretation of the Bible and specifically the Pauline epistles, they have to acknowledge Paul gives a command, or what we say is an imperative, for the gifts. Did you hear that? God commands us to desire the spiritual gifts. You know, when my when my friends come come and you know, look at commands in the Bible and in the Pauline epistles, they, they are banging the drum about what God is commanding. Like, take 1 Corinthians 6. God says, flee sexual morality. Now, is that a suggestion or a command? You know, when I tell my kids, go clean your room. Is that a suggestion or a... No, there's no suggestion here. You got one option. Clean your room, guys. I understand all the counter-arguments Regarding the cessation of the gifts, one of the most common responses is that we do not need to follow the command because the gifts stopped with the death of the last apostle, the Apostle John. Apostle John was the last apostle who died, and the argument is, when he died, the gifts stopped. I have a couple points regarding this line of thinking. Like I already said, we know from the early church, from early church history this is not true. The spiritual gifts were still at work in the life of the church. If I had time If you don't, I would pull up a chair, grab a cup of coffee, and tell you one story after another from the early church about how the spiritual gifts were at work. Justin Martyr tells us he's 2nd century, Tertullian, 3rd century, Irenaeus, 2nd and 3rd century, the great Augustine. Everybody acclaims Augustine, right? Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, we all love Augustine. You know, he's talking about the spiritual gifts. That's just to name a few now all this is actually the cherry on top of the ice cream because if someone is going to tell me the gifts of the Holy Spirit are no longer for today then you have to really show me the overwhelming support from the Bible. Right? At the end of the day church history is great, I love church history what does God's word say? Here's one argument that is often used to show the gifts have ceased and it's a really and i want to say this with respect it's not a very good argument but I feel like I have to mention it because it's used so many times. It comes from the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. I heard this for the first time when I was in Bible school. Let me, let me read the passage. Love never ends, right? As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. Now, this is the, this is the debated point. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 1 Corinthians 13 is used to say that the arrival of the perfect, verse 10, is the Bible. This interpretation is utterly dishonest with the historical development of the Bible and sadly dishonest with the Bible. The only interpretation of this text is that when Jesus, the perfect, comes back, then there will will be no need for prophecy or, or speaking in tongues. The partial will pass away because we will see Jesus face to face. God's word says a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now my in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. When we see Jesus face to face, the mirror will no longer be dim. We shall know him fully. However, until then, God gives spiritual gifts to his people so that we can have a taste of the spiritual realities of heaven. The biblical and contemporary question isn't if the gifts are for today. The gifts are not only for today, but God commands us to earnestly desire the gifts. Here's the third question I want to ask of our text. Why does Paul highlight prophecy? Right, in chapter 14, Paul calls out two particular gifts, prophecy and speaking in tongues. There are a multitude of gifts in the New Testament. You can see Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, but prophecy and tongues become a touchpoint for Paul. Throughout the entire chapter, Paul shows how these gifts are to operate in the context of the gathered church. So Paul tells us to desire the spiritual gifts, especially that we prophesy. Prophecy is highlighted because prophetic words can be a source of great encouragement for the church. Here's verse 3. The one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding, for encouragement, and consolation, like. I can't tell you how many times have been in a context where a prophetic word is given. It's a word of consolation. And someone's going through a hard season of life, and that through that prophetic word, God meets them. So that's the purpose of prophecy. Let's dial into prophecy for a moment. Prophecy, along with speaking in tongues, is the two spiritual gifts probably highlighted more than the others in the 21st century. So what is prophecy? First, New Testament prophecy is not speaking more scripture into existence. No one should give a prophetic word and say, thus saith the Lord. The canon is closed. None of you will ever be another prophet Isaiah. We have have God's revealed word in the Bible. We do not need to add to God's word. However, the New Testament does include prophets and prophecy that fall under the authority of God's word. That's the first point of definition regarding prophecy. Second one, prophecy is not necessarily preaching or teaching. The New Testament does make a distinction between teachers and prophets or teaching and prophecy. Prophecy has its own category in Scripture. I mention this because one of the objections to prophecy is that it's teaching. That's simply just not true when you need to read the New Testament. And the third, God can use anyone at any time to give a prophetic word. Anyone at any time. Think about that. That just kind of demystifies it a little bit. Because definitely if you grew up in the Pentecostal realm, you got people walking around with like a hat on that says, "prophet." No, God can use you at any point to give a prophetic word. Here's a helpful definition of prophecy, again from Sam Storms. He says, when I use the word prophecy, I'm not referring primarily to the prediction of future events. So, I'm not talking about like the world's going to end in 2022. It's not what we're going after here. A simple definition would be that prophecy is the human report of a divine revelation. Prophecy is the speaking forth in merely human words something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. So God's bringing something to mind. and He's might be asking you to share that with the church. God continues to use men and women to speak what God has brought to mind spontaneously so the church can be encouraged. I think this is the New Testament pattern, right? I think this is what you see when you start in Acts and you go through Revelation. Now, can a prophetic word be wrong? Yes. Therefore, prophetic words are tested. Listen to these passages. Now, when I read these passages, the the gift of prophecy and spiritual gifts are not being dismissed. They're being encouraged, but also within a context context. Here's 1 Thessalonians 5. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are true prophets, but there are also false prophets. Remember in Galatians, false teachers, the real deal teacher, Paul, right? Here's another one. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the prophecies. But test everything, hold fast to what is good. And later in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, let two or three prophets speak, let others weigh what is said. So, it is not the wild, wild west when prophetic words are given. When a person has a prophetic sense or or a prophetic word on Sunday morning, they come and, and talk to me and we prayerfully think through What's, what that person might have in mind. That doesn't mean every time a person comes up that word's going to go forth. There might be a variety of reasons where someone says they have a prophetic word and I say no. It could be timing, sometimes like the last verse of the last song and we just we got to move on. It could be the fact that I don't understand and so it takes time to kind of understand what's being spoken. There could be a variety of reasons or it could be think that God's not really speaking that to you at this moment. Regardless, testing and judging is God's way of protecting the church, right? And that's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Wouldn't you want to test and judge what I preach to you week in and week out with God's word? Of course. Absolutely. And so we do the same thing with prophetic words. And by the way, I say all that knowing I'm not perfect. I guarantee you I've preached things that I wish I could go back and be like, oof, really wish I could clarify that. Same thing with prophetic words. God is using imperfect people for his good, for our good, and for his glory. And that's okay. But we do our best to test and judge. Next question. Is speaking in tongues undervalued in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 to 5? Talked a lot about prophecy, but our text also talks about speaking in tongues. Paul contrasts the function of prophecy with, with speaking in tongues. This leads me to the to that question. Now here's the text. Let me read it again. For the one who speaks in a tongue does not uh, speaks not to men, but to God. That's verse two. For the one who understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. We looked at that first, Verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Here's the bottom line for Paul. When the gifts of the Holy Spirit are in operation in the local church, the objective is to build up and encourage the church, which means to build up the church, there has to be a clear understanding about what is said. Notice Paul does not dismiss speaking in tongues, He says, the one who speaks in tongues utters mysteries of the Spirit, verse 2. There's something here affirming what is called a private prayer language. If I had more time, once again, I'd talk about that. Nonetheless, Paul affirms speaking in tongues. The key that unlocks the door for speaking in tongues when the church is gathered is that there needs to be an interpretation. God wants us to understand so that we can be encouraged, built up, and consoled. I've seen a tongue with an interpretation in the local church several times, and I wanna share with you um, a little bit about what happened, and I think it was handled really well, and and perhaps that helps us understand how that could function here at Redemption Hill. Uh, Several years ago, I was pastor and staff, Sovereign Grace Church, now Burnsville, and uh, myself and the other pastors um, were there, and someone came up to us and said, I have a tongue, and I think someone here is going to give an interpretation. Now, I'm fairly, I don't know if I'm reserved or whatever, but I'm fairly cautious. I, I gotta push myself out. And so when I heard that, I'm like, no way. You are gonna go up to the microphone in front of the whole church and speak a tongue? Now, that's just me in general. I got, and, I, and I acknowledge, I fight through that. I wanna obey God's command to earnestly desire. But here's the other part of that. It was Baby Dedication Sunday. So we had a ton of guests, I imagine, unbelievers at church that day. And I'm thinking to myself, if my parents were here, they wouldn't know what to think. They'd be like, what do we do with this? And then, as the internal battle was taking place, the Lord brought to mind 1 Corinthians 14:5. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, is Sean Powers going to prevent the church being built up because I have some internal fear? No. Got to fight past that. I don't know how the tongue and interpretation landed on the congregation, but I do know collectively as pastors, we were faithful to the Spirit, and to God's Word. We were faithful to the command given to us in 1 Corinthians 14. What I appreciate about 1 Corinthians 14 is Paul's focus on order. The practice of the spiritual gifts is not unhinged. They are a command, but they have a context. God has given these gifts of grace so that the local church can flourish. We want to flourish, and so yes, we want to earnestly Desire the spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire prophecy, speaking in tongues, healing, and all the rest. Last question. What happens when the gifts of the Holy Spirit operate in order and in an atmosphere of love? So, in other words, what's the end goal of the spiritual gifts? Now, I've mentioned this several times. I'm going to say it one more time. The church is built up. And Paul actually says that three times in five verses. We want the church built up. We want to see people encouraged. The goal is to be built up so that you can love Christ more. When a prophetic word is given or a tongue with an interpretation is provided, the goal is to build up the church to greater faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing less will do. The spiritual gifts are an avenue of grace for the church so that we can see more of Christ. So that we would become more like Christ. So that we can love Christ even more. So, circling back to verse one, the church is commanded by God to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. You can't, you can't run away from that command. It is there, it is sitting before you in God's word. Earnestly desire. So in the weeks, months, and years ahead, may we be a church, this this church plant, be walking in the spirit, thinking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and being bold to practice the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's like, if you're not on the basketball court, right? If you're not on the basketball court, you're never going to get to shoot the ball. So we need to get on the court and look for the shot. We've got to look for the opportunities to shoot the ball. So let's get onto the court and desire opportunities to glorify God by practicing the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. Now, I had a few concluding thoughts that came to mind and then I'll pray. Getting out on the court means several things. And if you are a reserved Midwestern like me, this will, this will be pushing you out a little bit. First of all, you gotta open yourself up to God. And, and in one sense, you have if you're a Christian. In another sense, when you come to First Corinthians 12, 13, and fourteen, are you got your nose in the scripture and say, "Okay, God, what do you have for me?" And I think the next thing is got to be willing to obey God's command. And then after that, if 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 you feel like God wants to use you to give a prophetic word or even a tongue with interpretation, be bold. Again. Atmosphere of love. This is an atmosphere of love. So that means, you know what? If it does get a little messy, that's okay. It's okay. I'd rather see you be bold and step out and then recoil and step back. I'd rather you see, I'd rather you see God's command and say, okay, I'm going to go follow that and then turn the other way because it feels uncomfortable. Again, I'm just addressing the reality of a lot of us here. So be bold to step out in faith. And last, trust God will use you in a way that brings God glory. God is glorified when the gifts of the Holy Spirit are at use in his church. Church is built up. God is glorified. Let's pray.